You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office. Always glad to be with you for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. Today, we begin with a segment from our Catholic Chicago program hosted by Holy Name Cathedral Rector, Father Greg Sakowitz and Mark Teresi. They talked with three representatives of a group that strives to further peace in our neighborhoods. Nonviolence works. Let's take a listen. Maybe, Philip, give us a brief history of Nonviolence Works, and Alfrede and Larry, give us your involvement, how you got involved with it. But, Philip, why don't you uh, kick it off? Well, uh, thank you very much, and good morning. Um, and let me just say, in the spirit of nonviolence, just taking a moment, uh, we lost a great icon in John Lewis. Yes. Um, who was a, uh, who've done a lot for to advance that issue. But let me just say, one of the things... By the way, did you, did you ever meet him in person? Yes, I did. I met most of the civil rights guys, uh, Andy Young, uh, John Lewis, uh, Bernard Lafayette, uh, James Foreman. Most of them I met personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, but, he was an icon. But let me just say, yeah, but let me just say I had uh, saw this coming. Let me just say that. I had challenged another organization that I was with to make an adjustment on dealing with nonviolence. So they refused to make the adjustment. So I said, I need to go do it myself. And so, as a result, I started doing the groundwork, and Dr. Weedon heard it, and we went to get Larry. And the reason why Larry was important was we wanted the Cardinal to take a position on nonviolence, because the Pope did. And we never have been able to get the Cardinal to do it, to really take a position. Uh, so that's how we actually came into existence. And that would, that would have been about what year, Philip? Uh, this is uh, right when the Cardinal first got here. Uh, he About 2014, 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as he came, he came to St. Bride, and we had announced to him at St. Bride that uh, we were going to start doing nonviolent workshops at the churches. And he you know, gave us his blessing, but he never did any other follow-up. Now, what we were going to propose to him, because he was new, uh, that he set up a thing called Truth and Reconciliation. See, nonviolence always requires that you set up a truce, that we have to accept the fact that we in a reality that we cannot continue. And then how do we reconcile that reality? And so, but you need a spokesperson, a central figure, who have, what I call it, the moral majority, or has or have morals, to even convene such a discussion. And so his, we try to present that his time came, and uh, hopefully he can still do it. But if not, maybe Mayor Lightfoot can do it, because right now we're in a situation in the city where we need to call a truce. The police is at odds with the citizen. The citizen is at odds with the police, and we need to call a truce so we can reconcile. But you have to be able to facilitate that discussion because in both communities, there's only a small percentage that got the whole group looking bad. So there's a small percentage of policemen that got the whole police department looking bad. There's a small percentage of of criminals and and African-Americans that got the whole black community looking bad. And because of that, we are at odds with each other uh, because we because their code of silence of not pointing them out uh, is, is ruining their reputation. And I know 
and our uh, our code of silence, and they know, I know snitch clause is ruining our reputation, and their code of silence is ruining theirs. And so with with violence, you always got to say you saw it. You got to point it out. You can't stop something if you don't see it. That's true. And so, Alfredi, so was... oh, I'm sorry. That's the whole purpose of why we, you know, is to give people the tools. What are the eight steps to nonviolence? What are the eight stages of violence? And how do you really build the resolve uh, to do it in your personal life and also do it as a social? We can get uh, into those stages a bit later, Mark. Yeah, Alfredi, what about as you look at? The legitimate protesters mixed in with the violence that we see. How, how do you explain that to people? Well, thank you, Mark. But it's very uh, complicated because we're so visual and we we look at the images that the media presents us, mm-hmm. and most of us are not there. So it becomes very confusing. Uh, clearly, most of the protesters are out doing and, and demonstrators are out doing the work of uh, putting attention on this urgent cause that has been simmering in our society for a very long time. So there are some people who, within the crowd who don't know how to do a peaceful protest, mm-hmm. and hence they, uh, they become, as it were, agitators. They, they use their anger, their impatience and to that it ultimately works against the cause of change, of reforming our society. You know, Freddie, I, re- I really like your love your comment, Alfredi, about um, that with the protesting regarding the media. What's the media going to cover? They they are showing rocks being thrown, fires being set, that very visual aspect versus people who are uh, protesting peacefully, which is the majority of them by far. But then it's the uh, minority, violent people who are ruined for the protesters who are there for the right reason. That's right. They're there for the right reason. And, and thankfully, special young people are stepping up for, so we can actually look at the crowd and say, well, this is a new generation. They've learned something. They may not have acted until now because they needed some impetus that, that they could no longer avoid, right? But but they've been learning uh, in the last number mm-hmm. of years wow. that that this is the the cause of the day. This is central to building a society that we can all live in. Larry, when yesterday my wife and I were watching um, the procession, John Lewis's body over the bridge, uh, that same bridge, and he was escorted by a group of um, troopers, whatever that. Years ago are the ones that caused him physical harm. What were your feelings when you saw that? Well, you know, one of the things of the training that we do, Philip always shows a film. And certainly, um, you know, seeing the actual what happened during that bloody day and and seeing peaceful people getting just beaten up brutally uh, makes all of our stomachs turn. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought it was symbolic that he went over the bridge, you know, for the last time on his journey home. Um, so I, I, I think it was very encouraging by all the people from all uh, aspects of life, uh, absolutely commemorating uh, what Mr. Lewis did and, and how he tried to make a difference, and he did make a difference. Yes. Alfredo, you're on, you on the faculty of Lyle University. You deal with young people 
I'm sure when you were teaching in the spring, you were doing a, a Zoom teaching. But when you talk to young people in this particular area, um, what are they saying to you? What are their questions to you? Young people are much more aware of these kinds of issues. Now, I teach sociology. So when you come into a sociology course, social problems and the issues of the day uh, are, are central to the, to, the, to the task at hand. So, so they are already primed, as it were, to think about, well, what is going on in the world that we have to fix, that we have to address? So I have that advantage. You can't do that in a mm-hmm. biology course or an English <laughs> course, right? Good point. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, but many of my students are already primed, as I said, to be thinking about things that they can get involved in. And many Loyola students, given the, the nature of the Jesuit education, are already committed to social change, are already committed to social justice. It's a matter of how do they do it? How, what do they do? It's a good thing to go to work at a food pantry, but that's not going to change the culture of violence mm-hmm, in our society. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've been able to do is to invite Philip to come to my classes and talk about how to, how to become a nonviolent person. And that's a very often transformative experience for these young people, but no one has spoken to them so directly about that. Our prayers are with Alfredi, Philip, and Larry as they continue their ministry with Nonviolence Works. Next up, Father Greg and Mark talk with author, blogger, and recently retired priest, Father Dominic Grassi. You have, you have been such a godsend to the people of the Archdiocese as a, uh, a man of God and uh, an outstanding folks. When I say a, a great priest, I mean oh, from the you. bottom of my heart. And, it, uh, and also you're great friends with uh, Mark Teresi here, co-host. Mark, take yes. it over. Are you in your pajamas? <laughs> no, I'm dressed and ready to go for the day. One of my goals when all this started was I'm going to shave every day. I'm going to dress every day. I'm not going to let that take over my life. But that's good advice for folks, just yeah. to, mm-hmm. to look at each day as a fresh but now, day. Please, you know, Dominic, you have always been so involved in the lives of people when you were a pastor for so many years, and then you retire, which means you're still involved. But now, how has COVID-19, going back to March 15th, personally affected your life? It's affected in a lot of ways. A very positive way is, I keep telling myself, if five, ten years ago, something would have happened, I would have had all this time where I could read what I wanted to read, write what I wanted to write, take the time to pray without looking at my watch, uh, things like that. I would have thought, oh, my God, that would be heaven. And so what I'm trying to do is take each day as it comes, uh, see what the advantages are, and to and take hold of that. So since the virus has begun, there have been some changes. The spiritual direction that I do, uh, we do that now on Skype or on Zoom face-to-face. And it really is important to be looking at each other as I do the spiritual direction. So that's, that's a great joy. Um, I read, I just counted the other day, since the, uh, the original quarantine started, I've read 28 books. I've, I've sat in uh, a bay window that I have looking out over the lake and had time to just sit and pray or to quote the famous baseball player Satchel Page. Sometimes I sit and thinks, and sometimes I just sit. 
Now, what about <laughs> what about as um, so? You're still a priest. What are oh, you, sure. what are your new insights about the priesthood since retirement? Well, one of the beautiful things about retiring is I've been absolutely amazed at the number of people who've called me up to check on me. First of all, it's very humbling to realize I'm one of the ones that needs to be checked on, according to the statistics. Yeah. But the number of lives a priest is blessed in grace to touch in one way or another is absolutely amazing. Now, about, a month ago, about a month ago, a young man I had, he was a young man at the time, who was at, I, at St. Joseph, where I was pastor, uh, came, called me and wanted to talk, and he, he said, uh, you know, you said something to me when I was going through a hard time. It stayed with me my whole life, and he, and he quoted what I had said. I didn't ever remember saying that to anybody, and when he said it, it made no sense to me, but it sure must have made sense to him. Wow. Well, and good priests like you and Greg impact people's lives like you don't know. That's part of yeah. your priestly ministry. And they, and they impact our lives. Right, exactly. exactly. Now, exactly. I was going to say, though, Dom, it's interesting. When I knew that COVID-19 was hitting in terms of the uh, shutdown with the stay-at-home starting March 15th, in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, things will get slower as a rector of the cathedral, but as God is my judge, and talk to Mark Teresi here, I've been a priest now 41 years. I have never worked harder since COVID-19 hit. And you can say, well, what are you doing? But with just all the new protocols, changes, and directives needed to close down and the new protocols, changes, directives needed to begin opening up has been staggering. Zoom meetings, emails, but I also have to admit people checking on me, which is very humbling, calling, texting, emailing, how are you doing, Greg? And um, so people trying to minister to me and to us has been very humbling, but I, I can't speak for any other pastor, but for my life, it's been in the absolute—am I right, Mark? For you, too. Well, I do think—and I think part of it, in your priestly ministry, you are so involved in people's lives directly, and that can't happen in this moment uh, the way it always had. And that's—I uh, see with Dom, with you, it energizes you. Mm -hmm. But one of the things Greg talks about uh, in having us at staff looking at are new paradigms for ministry. Uh, Dom, what do you— what do you see in terms of how is this going to change how we look at church? Uh, before I answer that question, I just want to say to Greg, um, and any priest that might be listening, uh, it is an incredible job you are doing as pastors and as associate pastors working at the chancery because of all the changes you talked about, Greg. The flexibility that's needed, the added layers uh, to your life and what mm -hmm. you need to do, uh, just incredible, and and not the opportunities as readily available to relax, to join with each other, to have dinner, to support each other. Yeah. And so priests need to know uh, that people are praying for them, that us retired guys who have been through the wars, nowhere near what you're going through now, as pastors are praying for you and with you as well. Yeah, thank you for those kind words, Dom. To your question, yeah, it's a whole new paradigm. I think one of the things that's going to come out after all of we look at all of this on the very practical side is technology, the use of technology, um, the need for technology, um, 
we're all going to be communicating in a different way, which is really important, number one. Number two, uh, when the dust settles, and it will settle from all of this, um, how are we going to invite people back uh, yeah. to, to the church, to be open to them, and uh, make them see how important it is? As, as each day goes by, the, the faithful seniors who have been with the church every moment of their life are, are passing on to their eternal reward. And all the statistics show that younger people are, are not as caught up with the church. It's not as much a part of their life. And we're going to need to find ways of bringing them uh, to the church to offer them the opportunities to live out their faith, to share their generosity, their sense of service, the message of the gospel. It's interesting you say that, Dom, it's interesting you say that because if you go to a Chicago Sun-Times today, page 7, a wonderful full-page story about Father Joe Tito at St. Nicholas in Evanston with his drive-in mass, and the lady who wrote the article, I forgot her name, tremendous, great writer for the Sun-Times, uh, really compliments Joe Tito for the drive-in mass at St. Nicholas in the parking lot, and it's very refreshing. But to so talk about ministering in new ways, there's a wonderful example. I never thought we'd live to see a day for a drive-in mass. Mm-hmm. But that's happening in more and more parishes that have a parking lot, and people need, feeling comfortable that. to that. We need that. Uh, yes. and so many people are in front of the screen on their computer. One of the things that I've been able to do, again, blessed with the time I have, um, a parishioner that I knew from St. Joseph asked me if I was writing about any of this stuff, because I write. And I said, well, not really. And she said, you should put it online. She said, and I'll get it out to people. And I started doing something. We called it Reflections from the 16th Floor, because that's the floor I live on right now. And after a couple of uh, little reflections, it got really too difficult for her to coordinate who's getting it, who wants it, things like that. And I remembered that literally gathering dust somewhere was a website uh, that a parishioner gave me, thanking me for being his spiritual director, uh, he gave that to me as I left uh, St. Gertrude's in retirement, and I never used it because I didn't know how to use it. So I called him. He taught me how to use it, and I've been uh, writing reflections about one a week. Uh, I have 17 of them, and the feedback I'm getting from uh, people I don't know and people who haven't I haven't talked to in years and, and current friends, it's been very interesting. It's just one more way that we can share our faith with others, and it's, it's a way that is contemporary and new, and uh, we've got to use all, all the means that are Now, Dama, Mark has to take us to break, but what is the website, if someone wants to go on to read this, what you're doing, give us your website. The website's bumpingintogod.com. So bumpingintogod.com. .com, all small letters, all one word. Uh, and you'll have to search because I have a couple books with that name, and you got to search for where the .com is there. Uh, go on that site, and on that site, on the homepage, uh, there are a number of places you can be directed to. Most of those spaces are empty because I've concentrated on this. You go to where it says Reflections from the 16th Floor. So we're going to... Go ahead. Then you just scroll down, first one, second one, third one, straight down to the 17th one. 
good. Uh, a couple of real quick things. The first couple of real light. I think most of us thought when the pandemic started, oh, it was kind of courageous. We'll survive this. Things will get taken care of soon. And so it was a little bit lighter, a little fluffier as the uh, weeks have gone on. A little more serious stuff in there. And a lot of my stories, you know, I love to tell stories. Our thanks to Father Dom for joining Father Greg and Mark on Catholic Chicago. On The Voice of Charity this past week, hosts Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy talked with Father Charles Dom and Deborah Hammond about their efforts to increase awareness of domestic violence. Today's topic is an important one, and we hope that it'll be beneficial for all of our listeners to grow in awareness of domestic violence. According to recent statistics from the Public Health Division of the Centers for Disease Control, one in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate partner at some point during their lifetime. Excuse me. At least five million acts of domestic violence occur annually to women aged 18 years and older with over three million involving men. These startling statistics include a range of behaviors, from slapping and shoving to life-threatening beatings and use of a weapon to ongoing emotional abuse and isolation tactics. Our guests today are very, very well-versed in these statistics um, and with helping those who find themselves in danger at home. Our first guest is Father Charles Dom, a Dominican priest who's Director of Domestic Violence Outreach for the Archdiocese of Chicago. Father Chuck is also Associate Pastor for St. Pius V Parish in Chicago, a large Latino community in the Pilsen neighborhood, where he served as pastor for 21 years. Father Chuck has preached about domestic violence at all weekend masses at 175 parishes in the Archdiocese of Chicago and has developed a ministry, parish ministry teams in more than 100 of these parishes so they can continue to raise awareness about domestic violence and respond to the victim, the needs of the victims. He is a true, true advocate for survivors and as well as families. A Chicago native, Father Chuck is also a recipient of the Lumen Tranquilium Award from his alma mater, Fenwick. Also joining us is Deborah Hammond, a licensed clinical social worker and program director for our domestic violence counseling program. Deborah's great compassion and empathy have been a godsend to countless women and children who she has helped start anew during her career at Catholic Charities. Deborah supervises the counselors at Catholic Charities Domestic Violence Counseling Program, providing services for residents of Chicago in nearby suburbs in Cook County. So we, what a remarkable uh, collection of expertise we have. Welcome, Father Chuck and Deborah. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're at the top of the show, and I'm already um, thinking that we need another, we need six more shows to get into everything um, that both of you have learned and do and many of the stories um, of advocacy and and support. So, Father Chuck, we're going to kind of start with you. How did you get involved in this work? What brought you to being such an expert and such an advocate in this area? Well, when I was pastor of St. Pius V Parish in the Pilsen neighborhood, um, I had been pastor for a number of years before I hired a pastoral counselor. And it was shortly thereafter that she told me, you know, Father, most of my clients are women, and most of them are victims of domestic violence. And I had no idea. And I knew many of these women, but I didn't see the problem. So I asked her to um, help me see it, understand it, how to respond to it. 
And so she began teaching me how to do that. And I really learned that a lot of the people that I had been seeing and that I knew in our parish were, in fact, victims of domestic violence, and I had no idea. So she opened my eyes. So together, we, um, we looked for more funding because as I talked about this, uh, more victims came forward. I was kind of like the door where victims came to me at because they heard me speaking about mm. this, and then I would pass them on to her for counseling. And then she, of course, was swamped with clients so we had to look for funding uh, for more. So we did, and we did find money, and we expanded the program first with one or two more counselors, and then the women wanted something for their children, so we had a counselor, then someone for the husbands, because they, in fact, didn't want to lose them. They wanted them to change. Sure. We hired a, a male counselor. So we ended up with a seven full-time people on our parish staff, which was a hefty budget. Yeah. We, uh, we really did create a wonderful program. You know, I, I love that. I love that that was, you know, what was born out of an encounter, right? And you could have said, well, you handle that. You're the pastoral counselor. And instead you said, let's learn about this and let's grow this together. I, I, I really, really admire that. Well, thank you. Yeah, we did form a great team and um, most of our work is done in Spanish, but we also do English. It still continues. It's no longer connected to uh, St. Pius Parish. In fact, I am no longer the associate there. Um, I work full-time with the Archdiocese uh, Domestic Violence Outreach. But um, the program continues, and it's doing wonderful work. Can you tell us a little bit about the goals of the ministry at the parish level? I mean, certainly hearing you preach and bring up the issue like you said, opens doors, but then what happens? Well, when I was, um, uh, when I ended up being, uh, finished being pastor, and I was associate for another seven years, but the pastor allowed me to go on weekends and preach in other parishes about domestic violence. So I kind of started this on my own around 2008, and um, I called priests who were friends of mine to let me in and, and <laughs> open the doors for you. <laughs> and um, then I, I, in my sermons, I always said, if anybody would like to learn more about this or meet and help our parish be more responsive to victims, let's meet Monday night. And um, if you can't come, sign up in the back and we'll get in touch with you for the second meeting. Well, that methodology worked quite well. I mean, I generally have anywhere between 12 and 40 people who show up on Monday night. Um, that's just one day notice. And um, we focus on raising awareness and uh, about the problem in the parish, connecting the parish to services, and finally um, working on prevention. Mm -hmm. promoting prevention, especially among young people, teenagers and uh, young adults. So that's the, that's the primary focus. What we found is that the people who show up for those meetings, I always say, tell us your name and, and how long you've been in this parish and uh, why did you come tonight? And that's when you learn how many people are connected to domestic violence because they say, well, I was in it or... 
my son and my daughter are having a tough, are, are difficult times in their relationships, or my sister is a victim. We find so many people know somebody who's had this problem. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we've sort of through this pandemic, we've talked a little bit about with some of our other Catholic Charities colleagues, a little bit about this increase in in violence and this increase in as folks are home and stressors are high, kind of what that all looks like and, and what people are experiencing. You can find out more about all the services provided by Catholic Charities and how you can help by going to catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. Stick around. After a short break, we'll hear from award-winning author Amy Catapan and the publisher of Acta Publications, Greg Pierce. We'll be back in a moment. We invite you to watch Catholic Chicago this weekend, featuring a conversation with Cardinal Blaise Supich and video highlights from across the archdiocese. Here's host Todd Williamson. We'll talk with Cardinal Blaise Supich about the outreach efforts underway by the Catholic Church to help people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll show you how online masses have become a common way of worship, and we'll give you a sampling of how teachers and students in Catholic schools are being creative and productive during the health crisis. Watch Catholic Chicago Friday at 7 p.m. on Chicago Loop Cable, Channel 25, and Sunday afternoon at 3 on the Comcast Network, Channel 100. Throughout our nation and our world, people of all faiths have recently been joining fervently in all kinds of prayer. They have found that coming together in prayer is a source of comfort and strength. In this spirit of unity, the Archdiocese of Chicago has introduced a call to prayer, a telephone line dedicated to prayer. If you would like to join with another person in prayer, call 312-741-3388. This line is staffed from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily with parishioners from across the Archdiocese of Chicago. These volunteers are here to listen to you, offer support, and pray with you. A call to prayer includes a 24-hour voicemail and email options as well. Experience this wonderful opportunity to join with people just like you who trust in the power of prayer. That phone number again is 312-741-3388. Let's pray together today. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 950 a.m. and 930 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review, a program that brings you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. This past Thursday, Father Greg Sackowitz and Mark Teresi had the pleasure of speaking with Amy Catapan, an award-winning author and speaker who's staying quite busy during the current health crisis. Award-winning author and speaker Amy Catapan joins us for a conversation about what's keeping her busy during this COVID-19 crisis and um, we've got different topics to talk about. Good morning, Amy. Welcome to the program. 
Good morning, Father Greg. Good morning, Mark. Good Great morning. To be with both of you. Now, Good you morning. have been on the program when? When was the last time you were on, Amy? Um, I think it was a couple of years ago. I was on a few times to talk about some of the books that I've written for young people, um, and I was very pleased to be able to come on and talk with you about some of the great books for Catholic teens and tweens out there. And the thing is, when you were on, you were in the studio for that time, for those times. Yes, that's right. It was a very different era yeah, back then. Oh, yeah. We have not had a down. guest in studio since early March. Wow. Every guest since then has been via phone hookup. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference, phone versus with you in person, just that interaction. But again, we talk about that social distancing. And um, But now, what is the latest book you've written now, Amy? Because you've written several books. Um, yeah, so I have two books that are already out that I've talked about. I have a young adult novel named Angelhood, which I always say is kind of a teen version of It's a Wonderful Life. And I have a middle grade novel, kind of for grades five and up, called Seven Riddles to Nowhere. Um, yeah. That is about a boy trying to save his Catholic school from closing. Um, I just finished writing my dissertation for my education doctorate at Loyola. So oh, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. What was your Thank topic, you. by the way? Uh, and, well, it's related to literature, of course. It's Engendering Empathy for Immigrants through Culturally Relevant Young Adult Literature. Wow. So I was looking at how young adult novels can be used to help kids feel empathetic for um, you know, people who are immigrants and refugees. Now, is this so your that, Ph.D. from Loyola? I did, yeah. It's, yeah, it's an education doctorate in curriculum instruction. I just defended on June 1st. So after five years, woohoo, I finally what, wrapped that one up. What was that like, defending your dissertation? Well, um, given the pandemic, it actually happened over Zoom, like so many Zoom. things nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it was very good. I had an excellent um, mentor at Loyola and um, a wonderful committee of professors over there who were very supportive and um, a lovely cohort of classmates who, um, who are working on their own dissertations now, and they came and supported me on Zoom. Um, and, you know, it was, it was good. It was a really good experience, and I'm glad I, I, I did it. Um, and it's, um, it brought together a lot of my interests, you know, writing for young people and education as well, um, which is actually what my next book is going to be for. My next book will be coming out from Ave Maria Press um, next year, and it's going to be a book for Catholic school teachers on combating teacher burnout through some gospel reflections. Wow, how no, timely. That's, how, no, that's very, can they, can they push up timely. the publication date? Wow. No, that I book, do not, that yeah, book I do still doesn't have a title yet. yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have a title or release date yet, mm-hmm. but the manuscript is with my editor, so um, it is finished, and now uh, Ave Maria Press needs to decide how they're going to title it and when they want to release it. Now say more about this latest book, because I find it fascinating because I've talked to more teachers who spent, of course, March, April, May, and part of June uh, e-learning, Zooming yeah. for the children. They found it so hard, so yeah, difficult. Is. And here's the thing. They're trying to get school open next month in the classroom. Again, like football, like baseball, is it going to happen or it be completed? I don't know. I, I, this one, I really doubt this one. What, do, what are your thoughts, Amy? Yeah, you know, it is a very stressful time. I teach at a public middle school now, and we keep hearing different things, like, every week. So I, I don't know exactly where we stand, um, even with the school that I'm, I'm teaching at. There have been many plans um, thrown out there. And, you know, everyone's just trying to do what's best for the kids and keeping everybody safe. Um, but it is a very stressful time. And um, the funny thing is, you know, God works in mysterious ways, right? I went on a silent retreat on spring break um, a couple of years ago at a Jesuit retreat house, and it was my—I was feeling burned out then, you know, in the middle of my doctorate program, 
And um, I thought, you know, I'm just going to pray through the Gospel of Mark and see what I can learn that will help my teaching. And um, God just kind of planted this idea of, why don't you write this down and, and write a book? Maybe this can help other teachers. And so I pitched the idea to Ave Maria Press. And um, it just turned into a whole book then of gospel reflections where mm. I looked at how Jesus was as a teacher, right? I mean, talk about if you want to have a great role model for a teacher, why not go to the teacher of teachers, the one who 2,000 years we're still studying his teachings and learning from him, right? Can you give a little bit of a hint about the book to some of our listeners about maybe one or two ideas for teachers that could be helpful this year for them? Uh, sure. So, um, like I said, I kind of looked just through all sorts of um, gospel stories and reflected on what we could learn from them. So, um, one, of course, was the looking at you know some of the parables. So, for example, if you look at uh, the little parable of the mustard seed, right? It's a very mm-hmm. tiny little parable, and it's this this tiny seed that grows into this you know this beautiful tree, and as teachers, we're often planting seeds, mm-hmm. right? We plant little ideas in our students, and we hope that they take root and they grow. But many times we don't see it mm-hmm. until later. And so I think sometimes we get frustrated because we expect that mustard seed to burst mm-hmm. into a giant tree right away. Um, but teach- teaching is a great way to practice the art of patience, right? And realize that sometimes the fruit that our teaching is going to bear isn't going to come until later, but later we have on. to trust, right, that that little, that little mustard seed we're planting, it's going to turn into something beautiful later on. Maybe you're going to really love different. this story. When I was in first grade at 100 years ago at Mary Seat of Wisdom, uh, I had Sister Mary Joella as my first mm. grade sister. It was a one-room schoolhouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> and all 74 of us in the classroom <laughs> from grade one to eight. No, it was Sister Mary Joella, first grade, and she was sweet. I loved her dearly. I, I saw her about 20 years ago, and I thought she was long dead, <laughs> and I saw her 20 years ago, and I said, and she came up and she said, you probably don't remember me, but I was referring, I said, oh, Sister Mary Joella, and she's still today Sister Mercy, and, and I said, I just envisioned you older, and she said, would you believe, Greg, when I taught you in first grade, you, Greg, were seven, I was 20. Oh. She was a novice, her first, had just entered her first attempt ever teaching so I'm seven she's 20 and I thought she was a hundred because she was wearing the whole complete sister Mm -hmm. mercy outfit and I thought to myself talk about through the eyes of a child because she was a nun and she was such a sweetheart but you know that kind of puts in perspective in terms of you know seeds and how you see life differently and now that I'm 67 you know someone who's 30 thinks I'm Ancient, exactly. Ancient, and so now listen. Just to switch topics a little bit here, Amy, talk a bit about this Bellarmine Jesuit Retreat House offering of a special virtual retreat. Uh, say more about it. Yeah, that you're involved so, with. Yeah, so um, you know, as always, God likes to surprise us. I had planned um, actually to be working in Italy this summer with um, uh, Loyola. They had asked me to come on over and uh, work at their Rome Center this summer, oh, wow. and then COVID, right? Then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I, I have a little free time on my hands. I know I had to finish the manuscript for Ave. Um, but my brother took over as the associate director at Bellarmine last year, around this time. And um, we started toying with the idea of what if Bellarmine hosted some virtual retreats 
so that, you know, people can't go to the retreat house for a couple of reasons right now. One, they're doing some renovations that are badly needed. And two, obviously with the pandemic, right, that has um, restricted things as well. So this is going to be a virtual retreat. Um, it's actually the last in a series they've been offering this summer. They've already hosted three virtual retreats. And this one's called The Called and the Chosen. And it was inspired by this new TV show. Um, I don't know if either of you have seen it. It's called The Chosen. And it's about the life of Christ, kind of as seen through the eyes of his disciples who oh, followed wow. him, the, the chosen ones, right? Um, and the actor is Jonathan. Jonathan Rumi, yeah. He's um, a Catholic. A uh, very devout Catholic, and he plays Jesus, and it's not the first time that he's played Jesus. He's actually uh, he played Jesus in a um, traveling multimedia production about St. Faustina and the Divine Mercy image. Mm-hmm. And then um, he became connected with this um, director, uh, Dallas Jenkins, who's actually here from the Chicago area. He lives out in uh, Elgin. And he started doing films um, for Dallas's church, uh, where he was playing Jesus. And then Dallas got this idea for doing a whole TV series, a multi-season TV series about the life of Christ. And, um, you know, asked Jonathan, hey, you want to come back and put on the old sandals and play Jesus again? And Jonathan, you know, jumped at it. And it's with Father James Martin. So the retreat is going to have Father James Martin, too. So the focus on the retreat is how we're all called to follow Jesus. How do we discern that call. And so Father Martin's going to join us for a bit and talk about the call of St. Ignatius, um, whose feast day, of course, is tomorrow, so good timing here. Um, And he's going to talk about how St. Ignatius was called from being a soldier for the King to being a soldier for Christ. He's going to talk about his own call, um, leaving the business world to become a Jesuit. And we're going to have Jonathan Rumi talk about how he's been called um, to play Jesus in a number of different productions, especially in The Chosen, and how that has kind of led to his doing a lot of online prayer ministry and, and getting involved in things like this retreat that Bellarmine is offering. How did you get interested in your dissertation and looking at immigrants, young young people's love of literature? I look at our little granddaughters, and I think uh, Saturday we were there, my wife sat there reading to them, you know, from a distance, but they were in enthralled. I mean, mm-hmm. literature is so important to opening your minds and Horizons. your hearts. Yeah. yeah. You know, my dissertation topic is really kind of the culmination of a number of things. One, my own experience as an author of uh, young adult books. Um, in fact, when I was doing my master's degree, one of the professors said, don't start your doctoral degree until you have a topic you love so much you can spend years researching it, because that's what you're going to do. So it wasn't until I had, um, you know, my first book come out, my second book about to come out, that I thought, okay, I I found a topic. I'm going to do something with young adult literature in the classroom. Amy, when did you actually begin the research for your dissertation? How many Um, years ago? uh, Well, I started the program five years ago this August. So, um, and I knew pretty early, well, I knew right away I wanted to do young adult literature. Mm -hmm. So I knew that five years ago. I didn't know I was going to tie it into immigration until um, the following summer, so almost a year into the and program. And what, what, what changed the gear with the immigration piece? Yeah. What happened, with, what happened within you? What happened? So a couple of things. One, um, I teach at a school that has a fairly large immigrant population. I teach a lot of children that are actually the children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I went to Loyola's Rome campus that summer um, to do a little study abroad at the John Felice Rome Center, 
And the class I was taking there was on teaching English language learners. And as part of that class, we went to three refugee sites in Rome because, you know, we tend to think that, like, America is the only country that has an immigrant issue going on. And, mm-hmm. and far from it. What to do. Yeah, far from it. And Italy, you know, as if anyone who's been following um, what's been going on there, they have a lot of refugees coming through from both Africa and the Middle East. And so while I was visiting these refugee sites like the Jesuit Refugee Services and um, the community of Santa Gidio does refugee services. They're a beautiful community there, too, in the heart of Rome. And I just started tying the, tying the pieces together. I knew I wanted to do something about young adult literature. I knew I had a population that um, was comprised of immigrants and children of immigrants. And obviously, with everything going on in our country, I knew it was, it was a timely topic. It has been for a while now in our country. And my school has a unit in eighth grade where they study immigration, but they kind of study it from the historical perspective, from, you know, what happened at Ellis Island 100 years ago. And I thought, well, what if we could bring in some more contemporary young adult literature that shows some current immigration issues? So I started talking with the eighth grade reading teacher, and I said, how, how, would you, how would you like to help me with my dissertation? Can mm-hmm. I use your classroom and your students? And I started reading a number of young adult novels with immigrant protagonists and um, sharing them with her. And she ended up incorporating a couple of them into her classroom. And so for my dissertation, I went in and I was observing in our classroom as the kids were discussing. I interviewed a few kids afterwards to see what their reaction was. What did they get out of reading novels? about immigrants in the reading class versus what they were studying in terms of the historical aspect of immigration in their social studies classes. Our thanks to Amy Canapan for joining us on Catholic Chicago. Next up, Father Greg and Mark talk with the publisher of Active Publications in Chicago, Greg Pierce. Here's a highlight. Greg, welcome to the program. How are you this morning, Greg? Great, Greg. How are you? Good, like an (laughs) echo in here. How's Kathy and the family doing? Everybody's great. Everybody's great. We're hanging in there. Yeah, thank you. What? It's interesting you say that because when people say, hey, Greg, how are you? I say, hanging in there. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, my phrase. They yeah. say, hanging in there because what used to be fine is now yeah. hanging in there. And it, that right. is a negative where I say, okay, because I think we're all grinding out day at a time. When you read the paper this morning, you know, it's, it's re-spiking in Illinois and other places are out of control. Uh, it, it's, it's, it would... You know, Greg, if we had an end date, Labor Day, October 30th, you wait for the yeah. date. But this is a, this, the, the finish line keeps changing. No, no, exactly right. And it's not just the, the health uh, crisis. It's the economic crisis and also the uh, racial equality yeah. and yeah. Uh, police brutality issues that uh, we've been dealing with uh, through protests in the streets. And um, so what I wanted to talk about today a little bit is uh, this whole what's going on in Chicago right now. Mm-hmm. And there was a really good article on Sunday uh, in the Chicago Tribune uh, that I really encourage your your listeners to go out and find if they if they have it, or, or you can find it online, called This Specimen is Rooted in Policy. Say it again. What's the what's article entitled? The title of the article in the Tribune from last Sunday is This Vestment. This Vestment. Mm-hmm. is rooted in policy. Say more about that. Well, it's done by four very good reporters. I, I don't know them individually or, you know, but they really did a, this is not just a quick, 
report of something that happened. This is a long-term study. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, if your readers want to know what they can do to help, one of the things they should do is subscribe to the Chicago Tribune so that they can continue to do these kind of things. Same with the Sun, Sun Times. You should still be getting a newspaper yes. even in the midst of this pandemic. Or if you want to get it online, you can do that, too. It's a little cheaper. But you should be still reading, still knowing what's going on. And one of the things they, or what they talk about in this uh, uh, article is not just uh, the problems of housing, which is one thing, but also education, food and transportation, hospitals and clinics. And there's just such a – in Chicago, there is such a uh, inequality – in all of those issues, all of those needs of people, that we really got to talk about what, what it is we can do something about. What, what could we as Catholics, as Catholic churches, as the diocese, as parishes, what could we do to help make that the, our society more functional, more fair, more equal, more sharing? You know, Greg, you've spent your entire life with systemic change. Yes. It's in, you know, there's a Catholic teaching, uh, Greg, that I'm sure uh, your readers know, but I want to remind them that uh, Catholic social teaching says there's three kinds of justice, mm-hmm. not one. The first is commutative justice, which means, you know, just fairness. Uh, you, don't, you don't cheat anybody. You, you're honest. And, uh, and we all try to do that, I think. And then there's distributive justice, which means that we recognize that there are inequalities and we should try to do something about them. And a lot of our diocese and Catholic charities and, and all of our parishes try to do distributive justice as well. Uh, just, distributive a, justice yeah. would be like, uh, you know, a, a can drive, collecting yes, money, food drive, all, uh, clothing. That's dis- distributive justice. Do it. Yes. But there's a third kind of justice that's a little more difficult, maybe, uh, longer term. It's called social justice. And that's, that's the one likes tackling fog. Yep, it is. But it, it is the one that... You know, there's a, one of my favorite stories in the, in the Scriptures is the Good Samaritan story. And the problem with the Good Samaritan story is it ends too soon. It ends with the Good Samaritan picking one guy up out of the ditch and dusting him off and fixing him up and sending him on his way. But in a pandemic like we've got now, or in the inequalities of our society, that, that's not enough. That is not enough. The Good Samaritan also has to figure out how to make that road safe from Jerusalem to Jericho for everyone. Yeah. It's not just the one guy you happen to find, because that happens every day. Vic, didn't you do a whole separate parable on that? Well, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, right <laughs> I, now, and I, we uh, got the parable of the Scripture, but you did a take-off yeah. on that parable. Right, I call it the Good Somalian. I wanted That's to change it, it outside of uh, uh, the Good Samaritan. But the point of the story is that it's not enough just to do commutative justice and just to do distributive justice. We have to do social justice, but when we do social justice, we can't do it as individuals. We've got to organize uh, organizations that can actually address some of the systemic problems that we have. We just, today is the funeral of John Lewis, John Robert Lewis. Mm -hmm. And what was his, one of his things that he's known for is he says, make good trouble. And what did he mean by that? He meant, in a very nonviolent way, but organized, that we had to go out and say it's not good enough just to be fair, just to be uh, generous. We've also got to go after those, those root causes of what it is that uh, our society.
society has uh, got. And, and, and this pandemic and this economic crisis and this current crisis of Black Lives Matter, all of this is crying out for social justice. So if an individual is listening, hears that challenge, it resonates with them, what do they do? Well, the first thing is they've got to get educated themselves about social justice. They've got to read uh, the, the church uh, teachings on this. They've got to learn about people like Jack Egan yeah. and other Catholics that were leaders in social justice for their entire lives. And then they've got to look around. In, in Illinois, we have four organizations that I work with. Each one of them, one of, they're in the counties. There's one in, in uh, DuPage, there's one in uh, Kane. There's one in Lake, and then there's one in in, uh, in Chicago and, and in Cook County. And each of those organizations is made up of member institutions. We call them institutions. And many of them are churches, synagogues, mosques, but there are other institutions, you know, not-for-profit organizations and um, uh, organizations that deliver social services. And they've banded together over a long period of time to try to get at this issue. So let me, can I just use one example? Please do. Happening right now? You've got the floor, Greg. Okay, well, uh, let me know when I'm talking too much, Greg. I'm sure you will. I will. <laughs> he lets me know all the time. I do, I do, yes. <laughs> I go back 40 years, uh, 30 years, 40 years. Greg, Greg we go back how many years? 35 oh years. It Niles 35, College. 35 years. 35 years. And we're both 40 years old. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kindergarten. Yep. Oh, you've got the floor, Greg. Keep going. Okay, well, Let's take one neighborhood in Chicago. Let's take Lawndale. Let's take North Lawndale. Okay, North Lawndale, if you go down to uh, the corner of Cermak and Pulaski and stand in the middle of North Lawndale, you get a really nice view of the downtown uh, skyline. You could walk there. You could certainly take a bus there. But that that community has been devastated ever since 1968. Hmm. 1968 went after the Martin Luther King uh assassination and there were riots and a lot of those houses got burned out and you know who had one of the parishes down there monsignor john egan wow which one did he have presentation presentation Presentation, oh my gosh that's right that's and and so you know so what what has to happen down in lawndale first thing that has to happen and it is happening is that the community is getting organized It's got to start. The Catholics also have a teaching called subsidiarity. And that means that you do things at the lowest level possible, the nearest to the people that it affects. You can't, we can't solve all these problems from the top down. We have to solve them by getting the community organized and having them speak up and say what they want and how they want it. And they've got to fight for it because it's not given to you, as John Lewis would have said. It's not given to you. You have to fight for it. Now, Greg, in, in your opinion... Um, any Catholic leaders you see making good trouble? Yes, there are, but I think very often, uh, and you know, you know why I'm, I'm positive about this is because of the campaign for human development, mm-hmm. the Catholic campaign for human development. CHD. Yes, because both locally and nationally, they are committed to social justice and making systemic now, changes. Yeah, they at least at least they try and to do that. They're trying to fund groups that are trying to do this. So what has to happen in uh, in Lawndale and in uh, back of the yards and in South Chicago and in Chicago Lawn is that the people have to get organized. That's the first thing. And 
And we're helping them do that through these organizations. And for, for example, last September, right before this pandemic uh, you know, hit and right after she was elected, we had Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, out to Lawndale. And the biggest place we could find in Lawndale was, uh, uh, you know, the old uh, Sears uh, power plant uh, on Holman Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it held exactly 650 chairs, so that's how many we put in there. And uh, the mayor showed up, but we showed up with 1,251 people. We were hanging from the rafters. The the, the uh, fire department was trying to shut us down for, you know. Yeah, twice <laughs> capacity. Twice the capacity. We didn't tell them that. But anyway, the point is, we wanted the mayor to say, will you help us build 1,000 homes in Lawndale? And she said, yes, she would. And she's kept that promise so far. Wow. We are negotiating right now for the first 250 city-owned lots to come to Lawndale and to be given over to by building 1,000 new homes. Wow. And we, and we want to do the same thing in, uh, in uh, back of the yards. We want to do the same thing in South Chicago. Want to do the same thing in Chicago Lawn. Some, sometimes it's it's fixing up houses that have been boarded up and foreclosed, but very often it's it's um, it's building. And have some of these that, houses been closed and boarded for fifty years since the riots? Well, that's true in Lawndale. That's what I mean, Lawndale. But, but right, but if you go down to uh, St. Rita's Parish, for mm-hmm. example, okay, St. Rita's down on the southwest side, right, right near, right next to St. Clara Montefalco, where sure. Kathy and I were married thirty-five years ago this August. Wow, uh, that that home around around St. Rita's there were ninety two boarded up houses mm. after the after that uh, collapse of the uh, mortgage market about a few years ago. Yes. Well, you could you could read the writing on the wall what was going to happen, except that we stepped in to get the community got organized. They got the governor and the attorney general and a bunch of other people behind them. They said if you give us a relatively small amount of money, I and mean, it was it was not insignificant, but it was a relatively small amount of money. They turned that all around. There are now zero homes in that same neighborhood that are boarded up. They've all been brought back on the market. They've been fixed up. So St. Rita's Parish now is stronger, not just about housing. They have more people. They have more uh, – the, the schools are better. The uh, police are better. You know, police uh, protection is better. Because that community is coming back. Now we want to take that, that same program. It's with a group called the Southwest Organizing Project, which is one of our member institutions. Take that into, all the way down into Marquette Park. To find out more about ACTA Publications, go to actapublications.com. That's ACTA, A-C-T-A, publications.com. Let me close with a reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish-language Mass at 10 a.m., and Polevision for televising our Polish-language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 AM. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everyone. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. 
You can stream our program live us every or Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. Programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.